Hello, podcast listeners. I'm back. Uh, this will be episode 42 of the podcast. Uh, today I wanted to talk about 1994. Uh, if you have been following along, uh, the last one I did was 1995, and I think I'm just going to kind of continue in that way for a while and maybe backtrack at some point. But uh, 94. So I was living in San Francisco. Um, I had been working for Think Skateboards for a few months and uh, had kind of a regular uh, schedule. And uh, my girlfriend, Lori, came to visit uh, just before Christmas of 93. And uh, if I remember right, we ended 93 and partied into 94 over New Year's at the Fillmore Auditorium. I can't remember <laughs> who played or anything like that. Uh, the, the group of us was the roommates that lived on McAllister Street that I talked all about in the 1993 podcast. Uh, but I remember enjoying the Fillmore and recognize its uh, historical significance and uh, we had a really good time. We probably had such a good time that uh, uh, that's why I don't remember much of that night. <laughs> I probably got super drunk. We might have thrown some LSD in the mix. Who knows? But in any case, uh, I think she was still in San Francisco for a few days after New Year's before she had to fly back to Exeter, England, where she was doing a foreign exchange program in, in uh, college, and uh, I was sad again <laughs> as soon as she left, uh, but I was super stoked I got to hang out with her. Um, I was able to keep in touch with her. Um, every Saturday morning, I would give her a call, and uh I was able to get uh, card numbers. Um, so back in the day, uh, I back then, let's just get into it. I, I had a friend named Cole. He wrote Cole. Uh, it was his graffiti name. He was uh, an Embarcadero EMB crew. Uh, legendary guy. Uh, I really liked him. He would come by, I think, sometimes and uh pick up uh you know skateboard stuff because uh, i think he was like uh semi-pro at that point he was on flow lists and stuff he was a really really good skater and a super cool guy and had a real colorful personality i really liked him but in any case uh cole had a was able to get these phone card numbers usually they were uh for corporations so they were numbers that anyone in the corporation could uh, punch into uh, any like uh, landline phone, including pay phones, and be able to charge the call to the corporate number. Um, so he was getting those somehow. I really never asked exactly how he was obtaining them, but uh, he would sell them to me, I think, for 10 bucks, maybe 15 and they would usually last about a month. Um, 
and then I would have to run into Cole again and get a new number. But he was always around, so it was it was pretty easy to get a new one once the one died. And they were reliable. They often lasted for at least three weeks before um, I couldn't use them anymore. And uh, so that was rad. So I was able to call International uh, for free or for, you know, for that 15 bucks, let's say, uh, which was way cheaper than having an hour-long conversation just on a regular landline. Back then, international calls were super fucking expensive. And uh, I really wanted to be able to talk to my girlfriend at least once a week. I, I think I was writing stuff to her almost every single day. It was those days pre-internet and texting and uh, social apps and all that. You know, I was physically writing her letters. And every Saturday morning... I would uh, get up early and I'd go out to the street and there was a payphone at the bus stop at uh, McAllister and I think Central, um, just a block down from Masonic. Uh, a lot of the uh, Muni bus stops back then had payphones. Uh, so I would go down there and I, th I think it was like 7.30 in the morning, 7 in the morning because I was trying to catch her at a good time in England. And usually I think that was early afternoon when I would be talking to her. Um, and I'd, I'd go through the whole protocol with the card number thing and connect international to her. And I believe she was at a payphone too uh, where I was calling. And so it was really, really hard for anybody to trace us let's say, because we were both using pay phones. Um, so, in, yeah, so I was able to talk to her for about an hour every, every Saturday. And uh, the first thing I would do when I would get her on the phone was have her write down uh, a f the, the same phone card number that I used and told her to give it to all her friends, uh, which later on was really helpful when I went to go visit her a few months later. Um, so it made it so that her and her friends could call international for free. And a lot of them were assuming that they were going to go away to school, let's say from Japan all the way to England. And they probably wouldn't have any opportunity to talk to their, uh, to their parents and their family back home, you know, because it was just so expensive and, because I had those numbers, I made it, you know, so everybody could just call away. <laughs> it was a great little uh, underground thing. And because they were corporate numbers, I never felt so bad about, you know, kind of charging all this stuff to uh, somebody's phone number. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure the phone company just wrote them all off. You know, you'd get like a a million dollar phone bill <laughs> for one month and you'd realize something was wrong and they would just figure out what it was and you know stop that number so it wasn't it wasn't a terrible crime as far as i was concerned uh but boy it was really helpful to have those numbers um so yeah like it was that was the daily grind at think skateboards at that point i was hopping on the five Fulton bus every morning, taking it all the way downtown San Francisco. And then uh, 
I would catch the 15 Third Street bus all the way down to Hunter's Point, and then I would skate my maybe four or five blocks to the warehouse or walk. And uh, all that would take about an hour. It was a long commute all the way across San Francisco. Um, but I did that every morning and every evening. Uh, every day I had uh, breakfast at the, there was like a, the roach coach would show up. <laughs> and the, it was like a catering truck, like a pickup that had like coffee and muffins and fruit and all kinds of drinks and a few hot things. And uh, I would always just get a muffin and a coffee, which is like fucking super, super awful way to start your day, especially for your gut health, as I learned later on. <laughs> my whole life, pretty much, I would have just been abusing my digestive system with bullshit like that. Uh, and I was often drinking decaf coffee, oddly. I love I love the taste of coffee, but the caffeine would make me too jittery and I couldn't draw straight lines and whatnot so i would opt for uh decaf and it turns out that decaf can be four times more acidic than regular coffee and i was kind of really doing myself a disservice by uh drinking so much fucking decaf <laughs> mm. now i drink tea as i just did much better <laughs> um and i you know i'd also uh take a sack lunch to uh, work every day. I was really not making much money at all. It might have been just like seven or eight dollars an hour when I was there the, the, the first, you know, few months or first year. Um, my rent was, I think, only three seventy five, I believe, for my one room in a five bedroom or four bedroom uh, Victorian flat. Uh, so, you know, expenses weren't too high and I was taking the bus every day and uh, but I you know I had to save some money so I, I brought my sack lunch I think I would even bring like a soda or something to drink and uh you know they, the the guys I worked with would kind of make fun of me because it was like I was still in middle school showing up with my sack lunch <laughs> but I didn't mind you know I was used to it and uh it did the trick I was never trying to do anything fancy for lunch it's just like get some food in me and some energy to get through the afternoon i remember uh <coughs> excuse me uh, i worked with uh this kid jay he was uh a filipino guy uh him and his buddy worked there two filipino guys and uh it might have been the first time i'd really kicked it on the regular with um filipino people because I grew up in New Mexico, you know, there's not a lot of Filipinos in New Mexico. But in any case, there were lots in the Bay Area, obviously. And uh, the, uh, Jay and his buddy were really fucking cool. They were into graffiti. I don't think they did it, but they were like super into hip hop and stuff. But they were also really, really into house music. And Jay in particular was the, say this lightly but he might have been the best house dancer that i ever saw personally and i saw the best of the best at the biggest raves often they would create a circle you know often there would be four or five circles at a rave where people would step back and allow individual dancers to go off and inevitably dancers would go to the different circles until they got to the one 
where the best people were kind of uh, in friendly competition with each other. You know, they would look each other in the eye and flex and kind of pop and uh, up rock and stuff. But they all, everybody had smiles on their faces. Pretty much 95% of us were on ecstasy. So it wasn't like a hard flex. <laughs> but it was really, really impressive to see them dance. Um, it's just something about seeing a body in motion in time with this tremendous, all-powerful sound at the raves it was just so loud and the bass just shook right through your bones and just to see somebody in motion with that sound was just incredibly impressive uh and then you add in the lights uh and lasers and all that shit that's on time with the the sound as well it's such a powerful experience but anyway jay was really badass and i remember uh him and his buddy had girlfriends that were also Filipino and they were fucking so hot and so cute and sweet and uh, I, you know I just I was really jealous of you know Jay and his buddy because the girls were so cool they, they would come every day at lunch to the warehouse and bring food that they you know brought or made um, for Jay and his buddy every day and I'd be sitting there eating my sack lunch just shaking my head in such incredible jealousy of these guys that had these girls that would come and feed them lunch every day and just adore them and be sweet to them <laughs> it was crazy that was so fresh though and Jay was also a, a DJ and uh, he was super good I have a, a live recording I think from about 94 uh, of him playing at a place called the end up and the, the end up was a 24 hour club on the weekends, uh, meaning, uh, you know, let's say seven o'clock on Friday evening, it opens and it doesn't close until Monday morning at 10 AM. So it's just nonstop. It was like, it was fun. And they always had great house DJs. The crowd was usually quite, uh, Predominantly gay men, for sure. Uh, but a lot of, you know, everybody else, too, including straight people like myself. Because the music was just so good, and the, the dance floor was big enough for the big, for the, the kind of crowds it would get. Had a huge bar. The bathrooms were a little sketchy because it was, like, for real gay bar. So I usually wouldn't go to the bathroom in the club, it, you know, at in the bathroom there because it was just a scene I guys getting blow jobs and fucked and stuff and just not really my scene you know <laughs> so I would chill or I would even just go take a break and I'd leave the club for a little while and go walk around and write some graffiti and take a leak somewhere you know out of the way and then go back to the end up and keep dancing and shit but uh that was a weird detail to remember but anyway, uh, Jay played there on like Friday and Saturday nights sometimes when it was like, that's the big, big night. Uh, people from all over the Bay Area would go there, you know, and sometimes they would start their night at the end up and then go to a bigger, fancier club later on around midnight and then maybe go to an underground party after that. Um, but the end, end up was popping. 
and Jay was a really fucking good DJ, and uh, man, it was just so fun to be with all the guys uh, that worked at Think. We would all often be there, especially when Jay was playing, and it was just so much fun. There was so much good E back then, and uh, I don't know. Those were were just really, really, really good times, Uh, and I'm stoked. I have some of those old tapes still. Um, around that time too, uh, I was doing, I was doing LSD pretty regularly. I was kind of doing different stuff here and there. It was like, it was never consistent. Uh, and I had, uh, a friend named John that I talked about in the 1993 podcast when my friends got, uh, jumped on upper Haight street and one of my buddies lost his shoe. Um, but, uh, John moved to the Midwest and asked me if I could get him sheets of LSD because the stuff he was getting out there was terrible. And the stuff that he did when he visited San Francisco was super, super good. So I asked around if anybody had a connect to get, um, quantity of LSD safely and, you know, good product. And one of the guys at Think actually was able to help me out. And I remember he had me meet him at, uh, I think it was Molotov's on Lower Hate Street uh, one night, not late, maybe like 10 o'clock. And he was there with a friend of his that sold LSD. And I think everything had been arranged beforehand. So really just said hi, had a beer. Uh, I think he tapped me with his foot or something under the table and I put my hands under the table and he put um, a 10 pack of sheets. So that's each sheet is a hundred hits and I had 10 of those. So I had a thousand hits in these 10 little uh, paper sheets that were perforated and they had pictures of uh, Felix the cat, just his head on each uh, or maybe it was every fourth or I think it was each one. They were tiny. But, uh, and I think that was $400 for a thousand hits. And I then, I think initially, how was I doing it? I think I was using our, uh, black books, our graffiti sketchbooks that we would often throw in the mail to send to friends to have them draw stuff in it. And then it would get passed around to their friends and their crew and their city or whatever. And then you'd get it back few months later and it would be decked out all crazy um we did that a lot so um i think what i was doing was hiding the sheets of lsd under like magazine pictures that i had pasted into the black books and john just knew that was my system and uh, it was no big deal and rarely would i mean so basically if the police or anybody pulled the book out of the package they would flip through it and it would be really, really hard for them to find it. Um, even if they looked through it, you know, so we thought we had a pretty good system other than the fact that we were blowing ourselves up as graffiti artists and that might draw the attention of the cops, but we felt always felt like that was a pretty minor thing, especially just a sketchbook. Um, so I would send him the, the 10 packs and I think he would send me back, 
a thousand dollars so i would make 600 bucks on each transaction spending four and i think he used western union so i would go pick up uh cash at western union uh there was one right at masonic and hate street that i would use and uh oddly it was just a few blocks from where i would buy the lsd <laughs> um and i did that for john a few times um and then i'll i'll go into another story later on in this podcast where i something happened and i decided to stop selling it so in any case uh that did go on for a while i think in uh i think in about february of uh 94 <laughs> sorry i moved uh to an apartment i think the address was 737 bush i could be wrong it was right near bush and powell street very close to the cable car that runs up and down uh, powell street so kind of noisy with like street noise and stuff it was about a five-story uh brick building very very common um, to that part of San Francisco. I mean, almost every single building is that same height and shape and whatnot. Um, there were these kids that lived there that I befriended right away. Um, two little boys, uh, and their mother, I think that was her mother, lived in the building and they they were very poor i would see their mom sometimes begging on powell street when i'd come home from work and sometimes these two little boys would be there with her and they'd be sitting on the sidewalk while she was begging and they'd see me and they'd put their heads down hoping i wouldn't see them and that always fucking broke my heart they were super fucking fun and sweet and uh at the time uh i was smoking a pipe i i would smoke like a old man style cherry blend tobacco out of a nice little you know like what you'd think of just a standard like uh, tobacco pipe uh it looked really old timey but i i never really smoked it in public i would pack a bowl and i would go up on the roof of that building and i would smoke and look out over the city and it was it was really 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 cool and uh i remember there was uh let me explain like the the buildings themselves the one that i lived in it's kind of a c shape where the the top of the c is the street and then you know the long down side is uh backs up to another building and then it extends out again kind of creating a c-shape and so you'd have like a central open space um in the middle of the building to allow for ventilation and light and whatnot and often the building next door would be the reverse so it would create kind of an interior square and you could see right into your neighbor's windows uh, from pretty much any level and often often when i would go up there especially after let's say 11 o'clock at night 
um, to smoke my pipe, uh, there was a, a French couple, that a guy and a girl, that lived um, just across um, from my building. And <laughs> they, they would fuck. They would get down, like, all fucking crazy. They would always leave their windows wide open. And uh, they just didn't give a fuck if anybody heard. Sometimes even they would leave the, uh, the blinds open. And from where I was on the roof uh, smoking, I could see everything. And it was thrilling. And it, it didn't, I didn't feel bad. It was just what was happening. Uh, later on, after staying in Paris myself... Uh, I realized that's just what they do. <laughs> like if you stay in a, a hotel in Paris in July, you're going to hear a lot of sex. Uh, they just don't. Yeah, they don't hide it at all. It's I don't know if it's really a cultural thing. Maybe you could tell me. <laughs> but anyway, at this at this uh, apartment building in Bush Street, that was that was fun just to kind of catch that. Uh, sometimes I would even hear them in my apartment getting going and I'd go up to the roof, uh, to get a better, uh, listen. And, uh, those two little boys would be up there <laughs> and they were probably, oh, 10 and 10 or 12. And, uh, I'd see them up there and they would be mimicking the sounds of the couple's moans and stuff. And then giggling their fucking asses off, uh, you know. And it was that kind of thing, too, where, you know, it could be like midnight. And those kids would be kind of lurking around in the building. Turned out their mom was on crack and having a hard time. And uh, she ended up losing the, the two boys to the, to the state, I believe. And she ended up going off to rehab and stuff. It was, it was a terrible situation. Uh, but they had fun in that building. Uh, and that was really funny to see them up there. Uh, another funny thing, uh, I don't know at what point this started, but there was a, uh, what I suspect was a gay man, and he was directly across Bush Street from my building. And sometimes when I would sit on uh, the ledge of the front of my building smoking, I could see directly straight across eye to eye with his uh unit in his building and he would leave his blinds wide open and kind of dance around and stuff <laughs> he was a freaky dude but uh every evening at like i forget what time it was i really wish i could remember i think it was at like seven o'clock at night uh he would do the Cindy Crawford workout on VHS videotape on his TV. Um, and he would do the workout in like sweats. And he was like, it was really scheduled. Like it was pretty much on the dot at seven o'clock. He would get started and he did it so much. And he must have seen me smoking and watching him and just liked it or didn't care um and that's the thing i was close enough that i could tell exactly what he was watching you know it was only maybe 30 feet away 
you know, across a, a street, but up at like, you know, five stories. Uh, so, you know, people weren't really seeing him other than me, I would imagine, just from the angles and whatnot. Uh, I don't know if other neighbors were <laughs> in on this thing too. Guy was neat. Uh, so I would tell my friends like, yeah, there's this guy that does the Cindy Crawford workout every night at seven o'clock. It's fucking crazy. And they would never believe me. And then I guess it was just one time, uh, my friend, Sarah and Chloe and Natalie, the three girls that were like this little, they were just a little crew and dated, uh, some of my buddies. They were great. They were really fun. We're down to drink 40s, you know, and smoke weed. And they were super, super fun. But it, anyway, uh, they happened to be over there one day at like 7 o'clock. And one of them was like, hey, it's that time. Like, can we go upstairs and see this guy do the, the Cindy Crawford workout? And I was like, fuck yeah, let's do it. So we all went up there. And uh, sure enough, he was fucking going at it doing it you know and we were kind of really quiet trying to you know be respectful and let him do his thing and then one of the girls just started laughing out loud and then the other two got joined in and he looked over at us and was super bummed and he just walked over and he closed the blinds on all the windows and the girls went oh <laughs> bummer you know and i was like fuck he's never closed the blinds before shit we bummed him out you know so felt bad uh but at least they knew you know i wasn't making up some stupid story um <laughs> uh, but from then on he he never had the blinds open i don't know I, yeah that was it as long as i lived there it was probably another six seven months that i lived there uh before i moved away but from then on he, he never he never uh let the blinds up which was fine. I probably shouldn't have been watching him anyway. <laughs> uh, let's see. Around that time, too, I was hanging out at uh, at Sarah and Chloe's place and uh, with Soap and Felon and a bunch of other people. Jace might have been there. Uh, it was kind of our usual spot to start the evening before we would head down to North Beach to get drinks and get loose. Uh, we would start drinking at Sarah's place. And she was on Clay Street. Uh, what would that be? Maybe like Clay and Mason. Uh, super, super hilly area on like the uh, north side of Knob Hill. Uh, they had a cool flat though. It was a really awesome rooftop, especially to watch the fireworks on the 4th of July, which we must have definitely done that year. Uh, but anyway, we're having a party. Things are cool. Um, I forget if just kept. There's a guy that wrote kept, K-E-P-T. And uh, I knew about him. Um, he was up here and there. Uh, he was hitting the East Bay too. He had a reputation as a guy that would kind of mentor under a writer. And instead of kind of creating his own style out of what the mentor was teaching him, he would just do the mentor style, which we were like, that's kind of shitty. <laughs> but anyway, uh, I, I really had no reason to 
not respect him at all. You know, he's just another graffiti dude. I didn't think anything of it. But at this party, he started just talking a lot of shit to me. And it might have been the first time I'd ever met him. And basically, he was expressing that he thought I only did legal walls and then I never went out on the street at night. And, you know, which was really bullshit. I mean, I had already at that point, I'd already... I'd only been there maybe, I guess, five or six months at that point when I ran into him. And I had been doing work on the street. I mean, I don't know. I mean, my friends were like, dude, he's tripping. Like, fuck that dude. I don't know what his problem is. So he just kept talking shit to me. And most people that know me know I'm a very, very peace-loving person. And it takes a lot to get me angry or into a confrontation and he was really pushing my buttons and I think at some point uh soap and felon stepped in and was like you guys should just battle you guys should do a race on the street to see who can do the most full color pieces in three weeks and I think Captain and I looked at each other and nodded like all right all right that sounds reasonable that's a good idea Let's fucking show and prove. So that's what we did. I think kept left that night. I think we had arranged that it would start that weekend, this three-week race. Um, And at the end of it, we would just kind of have, let's say, photographic evidence of all the work that we did, you know, that should count towards the race. And also, it was just full-color pieces, like no bubble letter throw ups, tags didn't count, just color pieces with three D's and shadow effects and sparkles and multiple color fill-ins, you know, all of that kind of stuff. But they had to be like real pieces, um, which I was excited about because that's kind of my favorite thing to do is is piecing. Um, And I think the idea also really excited Soap and Fallon. I mean, they, they basically came up with it, but I think they were excited to just go hard for three weeks because um, they were, uh, they ended up being my partners through the whole thing. Uh, let's see. Let's be here real quick. I'm trying to, I have notes here I'm looking at. Um, so yeah, we arranged the race. So as soon as it started, Soap and Felon would meet me at the front door of my apartment building at, uh, again, I think it was 737 Bush Street. And I, and I think we would meet at midnight um, and ready to rock. Like paint in our bags, 40s in our bags, uh, joints, whatever, and just go and hit it. And often either I would have a spot or they would have a spot that we'd already decided on for that night. So it was just a mission to get to the spot, do a nice piece at the spot. All three of us most often as like almost these little productions, which was, and they were all on the street. A lot of them were in like the pits that were left over from the earthquake in 89 when they tore down buildings and they left the basement structures open So during the day, you could just walk by and you could see them. They were like little subterranean galleries. And uh, we did lots of those. We did lots of stuff right on the street, too. Um, 
trying to think like also like maybe just five nights into the race uh me and soap and felon were in soma i would imagine we were near like first street and harrison something like that and we were in an alley and doing really nice pieces and uh to our right was a big like six or seven foot tall fence with barbed wire on the top so we were kind of kind of uh cornered if cops came up the alley there wasn't we would have to run right past them basically or jump the fence but we thought it was pretty safe nobody was around nobody should be coming down that alley um you know so we weren't really tripping on it obviously so it turns out uh kept was in the neighborhood doing stuff and he got caught and got a and was in the patrol car and i don't know i have no idea why if the cop already knew that the me soap and felon were also out there i can't believe that captain would have said something to the cops and said there's there's other writers out here in the name i don't know i don't know how it happened but in any case like we're painting all of a sudden a car turns into the alley bright headlights uh looks like a cop and uh we fucking are like fuck you know we're cornered so we all just run to the fence to our right and jump over it and fucking take off running. And if I remember right, the cop car had to then reverse out of the alley and try to get around because uh, they, they didn't want to try to jump the fence and they thought they could catch us on the other side. Uh, but we took off running and uh, we uh, at some point me and felon were hiding under a bush uh just in like an near a parking lot i think and i don't remember exactly where soap was at that point but i do remember the cops came right up to right near where we were and they were I mean, I think I could have reached out and touched one of the cop's shoes. They were that close, and we were just hiding on the ground on our stomachs in the dirt under these bushes. And there were two cops, and I remember them saying, I'm going to fuck these guys up if we catch them, bro. I'm going to fuck these guys up. I'm so sick of chasing these fucking assholes. He was super fucking pissed. And I feel like I remember looking. I was able to look over and get eye contact with Felon. And he was just like this look in his eye, like, don't fucking breathe. Don't fucking move or we're dead, you know? And we did. We chilled. We, we played rock. <laughs> and uh, the cops didn't see us. They were flashlighting around and they didn't see us. And they, they kept saying, I know they're right fucking here, dude. Fuck. But they didn't find us. So they, they split. And then we were scared because we, we thought we had a beat down coming. And, uh. I don't know how it came to be 
somebody told us or maybe one of built maybe soap and fell and saw but kept i believe was in the back of the squad car um while these cops are looking for us you know so it was just like i don't know this is a fucking weird situation that we were in but we were able to kind of cat and mouse it all the way back to our apartments on bush street because uh soap and felon lived up in my neighborhood too uh as did a lot of writers bless was up there fours um dj uh just for the old heads that know uh and we, we were able to get back just before dawn everything was cool uh, and then we heard that, uh, Cap had gotten arrested that night and, uh, we were like, fuck it. You know, I mean, he'll get out at some point and he'll keep racing. So you, you just got to keep doing your thing, which is what I did. I kept racing, kept doing pieces. Uh, every single night we did at least one. That was kind of the goal was to have 21 full color pieces running after 21 days. Now also we were doing throw ups and tags and getting loose the whole time. But again, only the full color pieces counted towards the race. And I think at that point, Capt had had, he'd done like four, maybe. Um, I think just around it at the 18th and 19th day of the, of the race, I think it was that late in it. Um, we were down by Embarcadero and there was a, a building that had gotten torn down and instead of there being a pit they just leveled it out with dirt and they put up a fence that had metal slats in it so if you were walking by you could peek through the slats and see there was a wall there that had graffiti on it you know but at night you would just see the fence basically unless you went right up and tried to look through the slats so it was kind of like hidden away but during the day the pieces would come off really good and it was right down near the embarcadero near all the the embarcadero shopping center and stuff so you could also i think see it from the second level of the shopping center so it was it was a cool spot it was a spot that people had hit well before i had gotten there and uh for some reason maybe soap and felon didn't have much spray paint at that point and uh just wanted to catch tags on the street but they would look out for me on the street side of the fence so i could take my time and do a nice piece behind the fence and uh that's what i did i mapped out a really nice piece i think i had just started filling it in and uh i heard if I remember right, I think I heard Felon first yell, I wasn't doing anything. Leave me alone. I wasn't doing anything. And I was like, what the fuck? So I put my paint down real quietly and I crept over to the, the fence and I, I peered through the slats and I saw a squad car with the lights on, a policeman, and he had Felon up against a, a, a building. And, uh, and Felon was just like, I didn't do anything. I didn't do anything. And, and I think another officer had soap too. Um, it, so I saw them and was like, well, fuck my lookouts just got arrested. I don't have a lookout. Like I gotta get the fuck out of here. So I crept back and I grabbed my paint. I think it was all in a backpack or a messenger bag, probably a messenger bag and threw it over my shoulder 
and I hopped over the fence on the opposite side from where the cops were arresting Soap and Felon, and I fucking took off running, and uh, got all the way back to my apartment, and uh, what did I do? Because I didn't have a landline phone there. You know what I might have done? I might have run. I bet that's what I did. Because Sarah's house, who is Soap's uh, girlfriend, who, like I was saying, we always hung out, um, was on the way back from that spot, from a Barcadero. Um, She was on the way home to get to my place. So I stopped there at like three in the morning and gently knocked on her door in the window until she came and I explained that uh, Soap and Felon had gotten arrested and she was bombed and was like stoked that I wasn't arrested and you know I was just like that's what happened so I don't know if they're gonna get released in the morning or I don't know what's up but you should know and she was thankful and so I just went home and I chilled I think they called her in the morning and were like, yeah, we got arrested um, for graffiti vandalism. I think he, uh, they also explained to her that uh, a homeless man that was trying to get in good with the, the cops uh, used a payphone to rat on Soap and Felon because they were like tagging and stuff and they were kind of drunk. They said they were looking out for me, but they were just kind of getting loose and weren't paying much of much attention, obviously. And then the, the cops rolled up on them. Um, so I was able to go, I think with our friend Chloe to a, a bail bonds place, um, at across from the San Francisco jail. And we were able to bail out felon. I think it was only 300 bucks. His, his bond was, or his, uh, yeah, I think his bail was three grand and we had to come up with 10% to get him out. And then that we had to guarantee that he would show up to the court date or then the bondsman would come fucking get his ass and throw him for real in jail. Uh, So we were able to get him out. We wanted to get out soap too, but he had some uh, previous offenses that he hadn't squared up with them, missed a court date and stuff. So his bail was like 10 grand and I didn't have an extra thousand dollars at the time. I barely had the extra 300 for felon, but I was able to get him out and, uh, Bill was in there or soap, uh, rest in peace. He, he, uh, I think he was in there for like three weeks and came out and he was like, it was no big deal. Um, you know, I kind of don't believe that cause he was always a alcoholic and did a lot of recreational drugs too. And I would imagine those three weeks in jail would kind of suck if he didn't have access to any alcohol. But uh, he always came out with a good attitude. Maybe it was just that he was free and able to see his girlfriend again. And it never seemed to bother him. He probably got arrested quite a few times over all the years that I knew him. But he was always real casual about it. No big fucking deal. Just do the time. You know, hang out. Had no responsibilities, you know, which is probably nice. Couldn't go to work. (laughs) That kind of shit. Uh, and he often worked in bars. So if he would get arrested, they, you know, and get fired, it was no big deal. He would just get another bar job as soon as he would get out. Uh, 
let's see. I want to look at my list here. So we did that. Oh, uh, another spot that we were going to do during the race uh, was an off ramp uh, from the Bay Bridge coming into downtown San Francisco. And you could literally jump from the off ramp across a little gap of maybe only a foot onto a rooftop. Uh, and then there was a big wall on the rooftop that faced the on-ramp and the freeway. It was a really, really good spot. Uh, but you had to straight up walk up in the opposite direction on a freeway off-ramp to get to the spot where you could jump over. So me, Soap, and Felon were cruising up the ramp. Uh, we're staying to the left side so we could just jump across onto the roof. No problem. Real easy. And... We're almost to the spot where uh, we're going to jump across and a car is coming off the ramp. So we just decided to sit down and wait for the car to go by and then we would jump onto the roof. Uh, Problem was those headlights were attached to a cop. This cop pulls up and uh, just stops his car, throws the lights on and steps out. And we're just sitting there on... uh, kind of a curb thing but there's no sidewalk there it's an off-ramp you know it was like obvious that we had no business being there as pedestrians very very clearly (laughs) so this cop comes around and he's like hey what are you guys doing up here this is a fucking freeway off-ramp and we're like oh shit sorry we were just trying to take a shortcut to get back to our apartment you know, and he's like, where do you guys live? And we're like, Knob Hill. And he's like, where are you coming from? And we're like, the mission. And he's like, how the hell did you end up here? You know? Uh, <laughs> so it was just like, uh, <coughs> you guys aren't uh, graffiti writers, are you? And we were like, oh, shit, in our heads, you know? And uh, we were like, no, no, of course not. Why? No, absolutely not. And uh, he was like, all right, well, you know, this is where those guys jump across to paint that wall right there. And we look behind us and we're like, oh, wow, that's interesting to know. I mean, I, I bet that's a hassle for you. And he's like, yeah, I see guys up here all the time. And we're like, all right, should we go? And he's like, yeah, you should probably go. So we stood up and we walked away and we had spray cans in uh, like regular grocery shopping bags with us as well as 40s and whatever. And uh we left the bags because they were full of spray paint, you know, and we're trying to front like we're not graffiti writers. So we step up and we, we start walking away and the cops like, Hey, 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 aren't those your bags? And they were like, obvious. They were like equidistant. Like we had just set them down between us. You know, it was super fucking obvious. They were our bags. And we just said, no. And the cop just shook his head was like, really? Those aren't yours. And we're like, no, no, we just happened to sit down right there and those bags were there. And he was like, okay, uh uh-huh, sure. Yeah, get it on. And, you know, kind of motioned for us to start walking down the off-ramp to down to the street. And he hopped in his car and he just crept at like one mile an hour right behind us as all the way to the street and fucking mad dogged us as he sped away once we got to the bottom of the on-ramp. And I think we did go walk around a little bit we might have gone to have a beer somewhere or something and we came back 
and the fucking bags were still there. So <laughs> I think we ran up and we grabbed our bags. And uh, I don't think we... I don't think we went back that night. I, I have a recollection of us going back to that same spot, but I don't know. Just now, memory's weird. Um, I think I remember a detail of that night where it was me, Soap, and Felon, but I think, I th if, memory, I think Felon jumped across the roof successfully. And when the cop pulled up, it was just me and Soap. Uh, yeah, I think that's more how it went. And the cop asked us if we knew the guy that jumped onto the roof. Because he must have seen Felon jump across. And we said, no, we don't know what you're talking about. And that's when he was like, I see guys jumping across this to do graffiti all the time. You know, we were like, no, no, that's not us. And I think we ended up reconnecting because felon was on the roof saw the cops come saw him ha hassling us and went down a fire escape to the street just bounced from the spot but we ended up reconnecting with him in the neighborhood maybe half an hour later or, or earlier it was not a big deal uh yeah it's just memory i it's hard to remember these things from so long ago but as i'm talking about them sometimes little details like that pop out and i want to make sure i try to include those um so fucking there was like two more nights of the race i suppose uh i went out i think both of those nights alone uh one of those nights i was stopped by police i think in like chinatown area i was gonna jump a fence into a pit and do a piece and a cop straight up caught me climbing over the fence and threw the fucking lights on and hit me with the spotlight. And I was like, fuck. But I hadn't painted anything. All my paint was in a backpack. So I'm, I may be trespassing charge, but they usually don't give those out. They just tell you to get the fuck out of there. Uh, but I hopped off the fence and the cop came over and he was like, hey, man, what are you doing? And I was like, dude, I'm sorry. I'm just looking for a place to sleep. I had a terrible fight with my girlfriend. I'm basically homeless right now. I was going to hop back there and just try to find a place to lie down. I, I'm sorry. I'm not trying to be a problem. You know, I'm just having a rough night. And the cop totally bought it and was just like, dude, that sucks, man. I feel for you. But yeah, you can't just jump into stuff like that you gotta find a place maybe a park or something you know but yeah you can't just be jumping fences and hiding out you know and i was like i know i'm just i'm scared to be out here you know there's sketchy people and he was just like yeah just fucking find a spot dude you know you'll get through it talk to your girl and he let me go it was no big deal but i didn't i was kind of shook because i got basically straight caught so I think I just said, fuck it, and took a loss for the night. Um, but the last night, I was able to get uh, one last piece in. Um, and uh, so at the end of the three weeks, I had done uh, 20 
illegal, full-color pieces on the streets of San Francisco. And I think Kept had done, man, maybe only four or five. And he did some day spots trying to act like they counted. And we didn't count those. And uh, so as far as we were concerned, or, you know, my peers and my friends that I showed showed up, I did the race. I did really good. I had photos of everything and he punked out after he got arrested. And so obviously I smashed, I'm, I'm the victor, whatever. But if you ask kept, he was still like, fuck giant, fuck that dude. He's a fucking pussy, you know, whatever. He's a joke. I don't even need to waste my paint racing that asshole. All this kind of shit was coming back to me. So we were having a, a house party. Uh, one of Jace's buddies, I wish I could remember his name. He was super fun. I think he sold cocaine. He had an apartment in Upper Haight, if I remember right. And uh, God damn, he was fun. And uh, I was there drinking 40s. I think I'd already had two forties that earlier in that day. So I was kind of wobbly and I was like flirting with this girl named Sarah that wasn't uh soap's girlfriend, this other girl, Sarah, it was confusing. There were two Sarah's in our little crew. Uh, but, uh, I was trying to f get with her, but she was kind of a tough nut to crack cause she mostly hooked up with girls, but she was so fucking hot. I remember anyway, uh, we're drunk, we're at this party, soap and felon run down to like the basement room where I was hanging out with Sarah, and we're like, yo, Kept just showed up, dude, what are you gonna do? And I was like, fuck, I guess we gotta fight, huh? And they were like, you probably should, dude, I mean, he fully is punking you, and you did exactly what you said you were gonna do, and he's clowning you, you know, but we'll make it cool to make sure that, you know, nobody else jumps in, that it's just you and him. And I was like, cool. So I walked up into the kitchen and there was capped. And I was like, dude, come on, man. Can we talk in the backyard? Just me and you. And he was like, yeah. And so we went in the backyard and I was like, why are you still talking all this shit, dude? Like I showed you, I'm not some fucking legal eagle. You know, what the fuck, you know? And he was just like, fuck you, dude. You don't deserve any respect. You're a fucking toy. And I was just like, dude, you keep talking like that. We're going to have to fight. And he was like, fuck you. So I decked him. I nailed him. Um, we got into a fist fight. It, it was the, actually the last fist fight that I was ever in. Um, and uh, I lost my glasses pretty fast. And back then I couldn't see worth a shit without them. So... It was just kind of messy. I remember just kind of in the moment, just trying to fucking hurt him. I hit his head against a pole. I think he hit my head against a pole. Uh, I did get him in the classic, like I got his uh, head caught just under my left arm and I just was pounding his face over and over and over with my right hand. Um, I think I even got on top of him and pounded him. I ended up blacking both of his eyes, cauliflowering both of his ears. He was bleeding out of his mouth and nose. 
I fucked him up. Um, and then I let him go. And I guess he went, he was going to leave and he got to the kitchen and he grabbed a bottle. I think it was a beer bottle and he came back to hit me with it. And that's when my friends jumped in and grabbed him and pounded him a few. And we're like, what the fuck you fucking pussy. You're going to hit him with a bottle after you just kicked your fucking ass fair and square. So they escorted his ass out the front door, tossed him. And, uh, he went out and he dissed as much of my pieces as he could. And, uh, I ended up doing the same to his shit. Every time I'd see anything by kept, I would go over it. And that even counted like freight trains. If I was in different freight train yards anywhere in the country and I saw kept up, that shit was done. I smashed it big fucking giant throw up over everything. And, uh, that went on and on and on, you know, it was such like a shitty fucking thing. Really? You know, we tried to do it the real like hip hop, nonviolent route by doing the race. And then in the end, there's going to be a lot more like fresh, full color graffiti on the street, which is good for the whole scene and kept with such a bitch about it that in the end, I just had to fucking beat his ass. It was just, and then all our shit got fucked up, you know, it was just super lame. Later on, I realized, I found out from friends of his that he was unmedicated bipolar and was kind of out of control with his emotions and he would just start shit with people. Like he started shit, I think, with Revoke. And anybody that knows Revoke knows not to fuck with that dude. That dude will fucking beat your ass so fast. Most of those AWR guys are really really good uh street fighters not to be fucked with and i think kept even fucked with him maybe saber too he just fucking had a problem so i ended up having a lot of compassion for the fucking dude because he was he had problems you know and i even ran into him on the street maybe a year or two after our race and he was with fate who's another really sketchy fucking dude but I, I really fucking loved him he was had such a dope style and the coolest personality really neat guy but anyway i ran into them and i i stopped capped and i was like dude i'm sorry that that fucking race ended up getting violent i feel like that was stupid and a waste of time and i'm not that dude and i just i want you to know i don't feel like i personally have beef with you anymore i don't, I don't give a fuck and the whole time fate was looking at me like you fucking pussy are you apologizing right now <laughs> Like, he couldn't fucking believe it. And Kept, I think, was a little taken aback, too, and was just like, yeah, whatever, dude. I ain't, I'm not thinking about that at all. And I was like, cool, good, let it go. And I just, I, and I left. And that was the the end of that, you know? Um, So, not long after all of that transpired, um, I was wanting to go uh visit my girlfriend and i had been saving up money um because i was having to fly all the way to london to go see her and uh so i think it was in april i was able to fly from san francisco to london um i believe she met me there if i remember right and uh we took the train down to exeter where she was going to school at Exeter University. And uh, I remember 
vividly, uh, I think it was, well, I think as soon as I got there, we got settled. I saw her dorm room and stuff. It was really cute, cute college, you know, right out of a fairy tale book, you know, England. And, uh, I had brought two E's for us and they were really really good ones they were like some of the best ones that i'd ever found and i bought two extras from the guy uh knowing that i really wanted to share them with lori and uh i remember we were in her dorm room and i undid the bag that i had stashed the ease in for the flight and uh one of the capsules had broken and the other one was uh, was still intact so I gave her the intact one and I uh, put all the, the, the E uh, from the capsule that broke onto a table and I snorted it. I think I've only done that once, <laughs> that one time I had to do the, to the snore. I don't think I've ever snorted drugs otherwise, ever. But that one time I had to because the capsule broke. And... Uh, I don't know if she had much experience with E at that point. It might have been the first time she did it. I kind of doubt that. But maybe it was just these really, really good ones that I had. But anyway, it, it for her, it kind of came on nice and slow and even and nice. But because I snorted mine, usually E was MDMA mixed with speed in various amounts. Um, sometimes just a touch of speed, sometimes quite a bit of speed. Um, this one, I don't know how much it had in it, but the speed hit me first before the MDMA did. And I ended up fucking Lori like a goddamn jackrabbit for like 15 minutes, like, and feeling kind of out of control and out of my body, almost like looking down at myself, fucking her and being like, wow, look at him go, but feeling really disassociated. And I, I really didn't like that feeling. And neither did she, because we were very much in love and very connected. And I think that was the first time that we had sex when we first reconnected there in England at her at her school. And it, it, she was like, wow, that, that was kind of crazy. But um, we ended up taking a bath after that. And that's when the kind of MDMA hit both of us really, really hard. And that was one of just the my probably top 10 memories of my entire life is sitting in this bathtub. I remember it was like green tile and a green tub that matched olds, like uh, antique English fixtures and things. And it was the middle of the afternoon and the sun was coming through the window and it was just sitting in the bath with her in front of me high as fuck on Molly and just enjoying the moment and our love. And, you know, I missed her so much and then it was great. And then, you know, after the bath, we had sex for like an hour or two. And then went to the local pub um, to meet her friends. And I was excited to meet them. You know, she told me a lot about them on the phone, on our weekly phone calls. And so when I get to the pub, they're all like, yay, he's here. And I had forgotten that they had been getting the phone card numbers that I had been giving to Lori. And so they were so excited to buy beers for me and anything I wanted because they were able to 
have phone calls with their loved ones in all these different countries all over the world, um, you know, because they were all the exchange students. And uh, they were just so, so thankful that I gave them the, the stolen card numbers. <laughs> and it, it just felt so great. They were just so warm and friendly and excited to meet me. And it was such a wonderful time i i just remember feeling so good you know i was there with my girl that i missed in a wonderful place in the world and you know exeter england and i was just ah, i was so fucking fresh um so i think after visiting with her for a bit i went back to london i might have done that before but i had um uh friends that I stayed with in London in 1990 um, and then in 94 I think I stayed with them for a few more days in uh, Wandsworth is the neighborhood in South London that uh, they lived in um, 12 Westover Road SW18 God my memory's weird but anyway uh, that's so when I was there in 90 uh, I was music shopping and I was looking for punk music because, uh, you know, punk, I, I wasn't all that familiar with the punk music from Britain. I was more familiar with American punk rock. So in 90, I was there kind of looking for that. And all my friends there were like, oh, man, punk's been dead here for so long. Like, you're, you're just going to find old shit. And I was like, oh, that's crazy. But they were like, there's this new shit called Acid House that's like, you know the hot new underground music and this is a lot of the same people that made punk rock back in the day are now using drum machines and keyboards and making this crazy dance music that goes along with doing these particular drugs and i was just like oh shit that's crazy so i bought tons of uh acid house mixtapes and whatnot when i was there in 90. so when i went back in 94 i was expecting to buy more acid house and techno and whatnot because that was the fucking thing that was super popping Everybody loved the mixtapes that I brought back from England. They were like fucking gold as far as trade value and whatnot. Um, but in 94, that scene was pretty much over. And I heard this music called Jungle. And it was like kind of hard to digest at first because it's basically kind of like a form of reggae. Where reggae is, let's say, at... 70 beats per minute but if you had um double time drums with that everything is in time you know so jungle was this mix of like break beats at like say 140 beats per minute with a bass line and rhythm at half that speed so you could dance to it like a tweaker and go real fast and try to keep up with the breaks or you could just kind of kick back and kind of dance at halftime with the bass line and it was much more like a, a mellow vibe you know more stony vibe um but i you know it was fast and hard and the bass was so overwhelming i mean it was incredible the the bass response they were able to get out of those uh out of that jungle music and it was also kind of a reaction to the rave scene as far as from my perspective like jungle was made mostly by black folks in england um and i think they felt a little alienated by the 
kind of candy fluorescent rave thing that the white kids predominantly really gravitated towards and was more of like a speedy scene at the raves and things uh whereas like i feel like the black folks were more on like a jamaican tip there's a lot of jamaicans in london obviously and africans and you know so it's just weed is kind of more uh, the vibe um and there was uh breakbeat techno kind of evolved out of kind of the acid house scene uh, I think hip hoppers kind of people were bringing breakbeats into that music, and again, I think the uh, the the black folks in the in the projects there in London had a different vibe and were using the same tools to create their own sound, which ended up being jungle. Um, and to this day, it's probably my favorite genre of music. I probably listen to jungle more than anything else, but that's when I discovered it that. In, uh, and actually it was in particular in Camden Town in North London is where I would always go try to buy music um, and I bought tons of jungle uh, mixtapes there in 94 that I, I still have some of those too um, so eventually of course I had to fly back to San Francisco and get back to work at Think and catch up on shit and you know I continued to do the Saturday morning phone calls with Lori and uh, I think around that time is uh, when I was introduced to a guy named Flame. He wrote uh, Bliss. Uh, I might have met him through Jace or s I'm not sure who, uh, but Flame was the shit. His real name, I don't think it's going to blow him up or anything, is Flaming Star Muhammad Eckert. I think that's how you say it. Uh, we got pulled over one time by cops, and uh, Flame gave the cop his his uh, driver's license. The cop looked at the license and looked at him and looked at the license and looked at him and was like, are you telling me your name is Flaming Star? And Flame was like, yeah, my parents were hippies. And the, <laughs> the trooper was like, obviously, Jesus. <laughs> he, I don't think he gave us a ticket. I remember he, he, the cop had a, a good laugh because me and Flame both had kind of identical, gigantic black frame glasses on. We must have looked like such fucking nerds. A cop, yeah. But he didn't give us a ticket. Anyway, Flame was the shit. When I, and uh, he was dating this really rad girl named Jenny when I first met him. And they were such a sweet couple. They were, I don't know, they were just very, like, loving. Um, they touched each other a lot. They kissed a lot. You know, they, they, they really liked to spend time with each other and they were such a good, it was just good vibes when I would hang out with them. I'd, I'd sometimes go to their apartment and they would play me, uh, records, really, really good, like chill breakbeat house and stuff and trance. They had really, really great taste in music. And at some point I remember going to visit, I think it was where Jenny was living right near a Masonic, um, is it, ooh, I forget the street that's one street north of Haight Street. Is it Clayton? I forget. But she was living in a gigantic Victorian that was owned by this older woman that was super rad. Um, the, the lady that owned the house was one of the founders of Good Vibrations, which was a woman-owned and operated sex shop that sold toys and movies and lube and 
everything, but basically, you know, for women, by women. Uh, It was really a a new thing, you know, in that industry that was just so male-dominated and the the look and feel and the ambiance of a sex shop was just so gross and just icky, you know, and Good Vibrations was not that. It was well-lit. The staff were all women. They were super nice. They would walk right up to you if you had a question about a dildo or a vibrator or a butt plug or whatever the fuck. They would just give you straight-up advice or recommendations and techniques, and everything was wide open. And it was so, so cool. Um, I really loved it. I've often bought sex toys for girlfriends to use in the bedroom together. Uh, I think that's super fun, and it could feel really cool. And it was just really, really fucking cool to meet this lady. I mean, this was 94. Um, I don't know if Good Vibrations had been around that long. And I remember, too, she showed me a book that she had just published called Femalia. You can look it up. F-E-M-A-L-I-A. And all it is is photographs of vaginas. But the intention uh, uh, this lady explained to me was that women aren't really shown real vaginas you you know you if you see them they're in porn and only certain kinds of vaginas because it's a male dominated world like they'll they only want to hire girls with certain kinds of certain looks of vaginas and vaginas can look so different you know from one person to the next but it's really not something i guess that women see all this variation you know um so she she explained you know it was kind of a a powerful book just for women to realize that what they have is is okay and normal and it's actually more normal that it's not like the girls in in the porn movies um and i just i just remember thinking that was just so cool that i was meeting people like that in san francisco um that were opening my mind to new ideas and things and that happened all the time there, especially in the 90s. Um, and I remember, too, that uh, Flame, uh, I think Flame and Jenny helped organize a little underground rave. Um, I wish I could remember the location, but I remember it was a map point party, meaning you had to go to a place that wasn't the venue uh, to buy a ticket or to get directions to the next map point that might then lead you to the actual rave. Um, Often people did that just to uh, make sure they knew who was buying the tickets, like actually physically see them and have a feel for them. And if you thought they were cops or too square or just not the kind of people that you want at your party you would just send them on a wild goose chase (laughs) and the people that you uh you know were feeling you know you'd give them the the correct directions to the rave and they'd have a ticket and everything was cool and they were the ones that uh they introduced me to dj spun spun was a slang term for people that were on a lot of crystal meth a lot of speed it would be spun out um we might now say like that person's tweaked you know or a tweaker um but yeah back then it was spun and i thought it was funny that this guy has 
called his himself Spun as a DJ. And uh, I don't really know if he was a connoisseur of speed or not. I, I remember him having dreadlocks, and uh, I think he might have been smoking weed. So I don't, I don't know what the vibe was there. But that fucking dude was so good. You know, like when most of the world at the raves and stuff were playing pretty, pretty much in 94, like, you know, hard house and hard techno. Um, but in the Bay Area, they people were still mixing in a lot of international music and uh, break beats. Um, there would be a lot of variation in the tempos. Uh, not just like 100 beats per minute for the whole fucking rave, you know, like there would be times when it slowed way down and it got even ambient to the sound of just like uh, the rain or the waves or stuff like that. And then it would creep back up and get building again. But Spun really put on some of the best uh, the sets that I've ever heard that really took me on a, a trippy journey. Um, but also able to dance through the whole thing, which is obviously super important. Uh, I have a bunch of mixes uh, on tape from back then that I had converted into MP3s. I, I might drop some of those in my podcast after this one just so you can get a real feel for uh, the era, you know, through the, the sounds. Um, back then, too, uh, I really liked to paint with jace he was the head of uh ba crew still is as far as i'm concerned he came from the east coast like baltimore area to san francisco like a lot of us it came from other places and uh jace didn't i can't say he didn't like to paint walls because he did he was one of the most up writers in san francisco with uh these like je tags i believe they were or throw ups and and jace tags and they were fucking everywhere he could knock them out so fast um but you know if he was going to try to flex with some styles often he would just do that on freight trains he was doing freight trains almost every single night and i think he did that for years and years and years i know there's probably people that have painted more freight trains than jace but I don't, I've never met anybody <laughs> and I've seen Jace's uh, photo album. So I know for sure. I mean, it could be in the thousands of full color pieces on, on trains that Jace has done. So if, if I wanted to paint with Jace often, I would have to go uh, paint trains with him. And I was never into the train so much because I like to see the graffiti that I do. And if I did a freight train, I'd kind of never see it again unless somebody sent me a photo of it in some foreign state or whatever. But I I kind of felt like freight trains were a bit of a waste of paint. Uh, but J Jace felt differently about it. Uh, but I really loved painting with him. And often... Uh, he would, uh, I think back then he had this uh, Miata, a Mazda Miata, like a two-seater little sports car. And if I remember right, it was painted flat black. It was a fucking amazing getaway vehicle, really. <laughs> and uh, he would always, uh, he would always show up to pick me up and uh, he would have a 40 on him that he was like finishing. And then we would stop at a corner store uh to grab some more 40s and he would usually grab three more if i remember correctly 
and then we would drive all the way out to Oakland from the city to paint the yards there. And there was like two or three spots that we would usually hit. Um, but he would drink one of the 40s on the drive to the train yard. And then we would park somewhere discreetly, get all our gear together, walk into the yard, maybe hop a fence or whatever. And then uh, we would start painting and he would start that second 40. So he was drinking so much beer one of the big memories I remember is like damn near every time I would look down towards his direction to make sure there was no cops or anything coming, he'd be peeing because <laughs> he was drinking so much. It was just every fucking time I would look over and it wasn't like all the time, you know, it was like I might look over every five minutes or so if I was working on a piece just to make sure everything was cool because we would just get, get to work, you know, not talk so much, try to stay quiet in the yard. And uh, yeah, he'd, he'd have to be peeing so much. And uh, I remember one night, too, um, I learned about ghost cars. So in a live freight yard, we were hitting the live yard in Oakland. Um, and sometimes when they're lining up train cars to uh, roll them out, uh, they, you know, will push uh, a freight car and then they'll let it go at one end of the yard and under its own momentum it'll coast all the way through the yard and then slam into uh the train that it's supposed to be connected to but while it's coasting these huge metal fucking hundreds of thousands of pounds i have no idea they're silent and they're just cruising along through the yard in the dark and you really have to be aware of those because, again, they're silent. And if you get hit by any part of that, I mean, it, it'll just rip your head right the fuck off. I mean, it weighs so much and there's just so much force behind them, even if they're just coasting like that, that you're fucking dead for sure if you get hit um, or at least get a broken arm or something. So one of those occasions I was in that live yard with Jace. And all I did was step back a few steps so I could kind of look at my piece, you know, all at once. And uh, I just remember Jace in a flash running at me and grabbing me and throwing me to the ground. In, in a freight yard, that's rocks. And it, it, it hurt. Um, and he threw me to the ground and kind of got on top of me. and was like, what the fuck are you doing? And that's when the ghost train went past us. He basically saved my life. Like, I was backing up to look at my piece. There was a ghost car coming. I didn't see it or hear it. He did. He grabbed me and threw me down. And he was so fucking mad at me. Like, I'd pulled a super fucking rookie move. And that would have put him in a lot of fucking difficulty and problem if I had gotten killed. You know, he was he was pissed, but we kept on painting. We we did our thing, and he was just like, "Dude, you gotta watch out for those. Like, please don't ever let that happen again." And I was like, "Dude, I got you. I'm sorry I scared you so bad. <laughs> my bad, dude." Um, but yeah, he saved my fucking life, um, but also took me to the place that could have taken my life, I guess. But I was there as a willing participant. We had a fucking good time. Um, I'm only in my notes kind of 
halfway through 1994 right now. Um, I think I'm going to stop here because we're almost at an hour and a half, and that's when these files start to get weird. Uh, but I'll continue this uh, in the next episode. Um, yeah, just because so much, I guess, happened in 94. This is fun. Hope you're enjoying these uh, memory-driven podcasts. I'll be coming back with some more like music content and some interviews at some point. But uh, I've been getting a lot of really positive feedback on these uh, back-in-the-day podcasts. So, uh, yeah, glad you enjoy. Uh, take it easy.